0: Hey, how many of you have ever had a root canal? (laughs) Yeah, so I had my third one on Monday. (laughs) To say they're unpleasant is an understatement. Actually, since becoming a member of the Root Canal Club, (laughs) I give testimony that the thought of having a root canal is actually more painful than the actual procedure. At least in my case, and I think that's due to some new techniques and improved methods over the years. But for many of us, we'd rather have a root canal than share the gospel with someone. The thought of it can make us cringe. But when God uses us to share the good news of the gospel... It's not so bad, is it? And today we're going to discover not a new technique, but rather a tried and true method that's been around for thousands of years. Here's our main idea. Give God glory by telling the story of God's grace in your life. Let's begin by looking at some examples. I'll start in Psalm chapter 40, verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. And then into the Gospels, Luke chapter 8, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away. Listen to what Jesus said. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Very similar Samaritan woman chapter 4 of John verse 39 many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Listen, because of the what? woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. John 15 verse 27. And you and you will also bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. Acts 4:33. "And with great power, the apostles were giving their what? Say it with me, their yes. testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus comma, and great grace was upon them all. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, and what will they ask? They're like, hey, why do you have hope? They ask you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 speaks of the effectiveness of eyewitness testimony. We read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And then Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. You might want to write this verse down. I can't say I remembered this verse until I'd studied this week. Check this. And they have conquered him. They're talking about Satan, about the devil. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Listen for this next part. And by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Listen. People can doubt or debate the Bible, They can doubt or debate the existence of God, but no one can deny your personal story with God. Your testimony is one of the most effective tools in your evangelism toolbox. One dictionary defines testimony as giving a firsthand authentication of a fact, especially in court. It has the idea of open acknowledgement. It's closely related to the word witness. In Hebrew, it refers to someone who sees something amazing or important. In Greek, it means to answer. And the word, it's the word from which we get the word martyr. Martyr. The word witness is the most frequently used word in the Bible to express a believer's primary role in the world. So let me ask a question. You ponder it. What would happen if a witness took the stand, was asked for his or her testimony, but they never opened their mouth? Well, there are at least three benefits of a personal testimony. First, it exalts God. It stirs us to worship. Psalm 107, 1 and 2, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Listen to this next phrase. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Secondly, a testimony encourages other people. There's nothing like hearing a testimony when you're feeling discouraged or even distant. From God, or you feel like you've been DQ'd because of a sin you've committed, and you hear someone tell the story of their sins being forgiven. Let's listen to Psalm 71, 15 and 16, my mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come, I will remind them, the listeners of your righteousness yours alone. And thirdly, this is probably the one we think of most quickly, the evangelization of unbelievers. First Chronicles 16:24 declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. Well, last weekend we left the apostle Paul standing on the temple steps. He had just been falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple. He was almost killed and then arrested by the Romans. And because he was granted permission to speak to the people, he decided to share his testimony. Now, as evidence of how powerful a testimony is, are you aware Paul's testimony is recorded seven times in the book of Acts and in the letters, in the epistles? If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, open it up to Acts chapter 22. We're continuing our journey through the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you. Please use that, open it up. We'll also have it up on the screen. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as our gift to you. You can also follow along on your mobile uh, device. So Paul modeled three main parts to an effective testimony in this chapter. We, we could summarize them with three simple words. Number one, before. Number two, how. So the before is, what was your life like before Christ? How? What are the circumstances that led you to saving faith in Christ? How did Christ save you? And then three, after Speak about what changes Christ has made in your life. You see, every Christ follower has a story to tell. Oh, sure, the details are different, but we're all saved by God's grace, and testimonies are a direct reflection of the indisputable, life-changing power of the gospel. Well, let's dive in. Look at verse 1. Paul begins with gentleness and respect. He invites his listeners to lean forward. Listen to how he begins. Remember, he's just been pummeled. He's just been beaten, arrested. This is how he starts. I don't know if I would. I think I'd be more mad. He's like brothers and fathers. Oh, it's so affectionate. Brothers and fathers, hear hear the defense that I now make before you. The word brother means from the same womb. The word father has the idea of model or mentor. And Paul experienced right here the promise made by Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 10. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Paul doesn't seem anxious here, does he? For what you are to say will be given you at that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So by choosing to speak their heart language, in verse 2, he engages them emotionally. He kind of knocks them off stride. He, he takes them off guard. Notice verse 2. And when they heard, he was addressing them in the Hebrew language. So he's speaking to Jews. Paul knew Greek. He probably knew Latin. And he certainly knew Hebrew, Aramaic. He spoke in their language. And notice what it says. They became even more quiet. We can apply these first two verses this way. Be kind. And number two, look for ways to connect to the heart. Okay, let's see first part of our outline, before. The best way to begin your testimony is to talk about what your life was like before Christ saved you. Listen to how Paul did it. I'm in verses three through five. I am a Jew. It tells us he's religious. I was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, a very famous city. But I was brought up in this city. He's referring to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Notice how he's kind of bringing them in as he talks. As all of you are, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He's like, you guys know me. I was after Christians. I was capturing them. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So Paul identified himself with them right at the top by declaring he was a Jew. He was born in a world-class city but educated right there in Jerusalem and notice what he says, at the feet of Gamaliel, Well, that phrase meant that he sat on the ground in humility to learn from this great, well-known, highly respected rabbi. He was a doctor of the law, a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's kind of (laughs) name-dropping. I do that sometimes. I, I tell people that Ray Pritchard is my friend and He's my mentor, he taught me how to preach, to which people say, well, shouldn't you be preaching better by now? But Paul learned to be accurate in his understanding of the Torah, so he's he's learning from like the top guy in Jerusalem. So Paul's establishing his background, what he was like before. Next, he established how zealous he was. Notice, he says that he was persecuting members of the Way. Well, who's that? The way. Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Early believers were known as followers of the way. And notice he was persecuting members to death. Paul used to be one with them in his opposition of Christianity. That resonated with them because in their, it was their zeal that was causing them to want to kill Paul, who's now a Christian. Paul even talks about receiving letters. They're like warrants from the officials. Paul traveled, get this, 150 miles to Damascus, that's in Syria, to hunt down, arrest, and punish followers of Jesus. And would you note, he did that to men and women, which means he probably separated mothers from their children. That's Paul's past. Paul's life before Christ included the murder of Christians. All right, so let's pause. You go, okay, that's interesting. Now let's bring it to where we are. How does this apply to our lives? So here are some questions for you and I to think about in our before. What was our life like before we met Christ? Here are some questions. What were you searching for before coming to Christ? What was your view of God at the time? What was the chief issue, the attitude, or the problem you were struggling with? And this is a good question to ponder. How did you try to satisfy your inner needs through unsatisfactory solutions? Friends, give God the glory by telling the story of God's grace in your life. Notice next, Paul now transitions from this is what I was like before to how he came to know Christ. This is the bulk of his testimony. Uh, I'll read, you listen. I'll begin in verse 6. Paul's just telling the narrative what happened. As I was on my way, where was he going? He drew near to Damascus. Here's what happened. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground. And I heard her voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? By the way, Saul's his Hebrew name, so he's talking to Jewish people. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? The Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, he's blind because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Remember how all the Jews now are questioning him. This is instant credibility. He's like this, Ananias, help me. He was a devout man. He came to me and he standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth for you will be a, here's the word, a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard and now why do you wait, rise and be baptized, wash away your sins calling on his name. (laughs) So Paul (laughs) describes this great light from heaven and you know when it made that appearance? At noon. Usually you don't notice bright lights in the middle of the day. My guess is listeners were paying full attention. That word suddenly has the idea of unexpectedly. Observe, Paul was not searching for God. He wasn't even on a path to learn more about Jesus. Not at all. By saying this light came from heaven, Paul described something only God could do. It was clear. Everything about Paul's conversion came from God. Notice, he fell to the ground in awe and complete surrender. Then he described hearing a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This was another connection to his Jewish audience. To persecute believers is to persecute Christ. And then he asked two critical questions which you and I must also ask. Here they are. Who are you, Lord? I don't really know you. I've heard about you. I went to church when I was young. But but who are you? And notice... He says, my name is Jesus. That means Savior. His title is Lord, Master. Jesus grew up in Nazareth to fulfill prophecy, and that distinguished him from other men with the same name. Friend, you must come to grips with Jesus as Lord for him to be your Savior. Just start there. Who are you, Lord? Second question. Oh, so important. What shall I do, Lord? Both times. Lord, who are you? Lord, what shall I do? Lord. You see, because he's Lord, we must all ask that question. What do you want me to do? See, once we're saved by the Lord, we must serve the Lord. This is not easy believism kind of (laughs) faith. This isn't add Jesus to your life like you add an app to your phone and just go on living like you've always lived. No, this is, oh, you're Lord uh, what do you want me to do? I'm your servant. To the answer to Paul's question about what he should do is given in verses 15 and 16, be a witness and get baptized. <laughs> so if you're a born-again believer, you're called to be a witness and you're commanded to be baptized. That phrase, be baptized, is emphatic. It means to cause thyself to be baptized. The grammatical structure indicates the washing away of sins is tied to the calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is a seal of salvation. It reminds us of the remission of our sins. It doesn't confer salvation. It confirms it. And our next baptism service will be held the last weekend of February. So here's where we've been. We talked about the before. Now we've looked at Paul's how. So let me ask some questions to get us to be thinking about, well, how would I formulate the how part of my own testimony? Well, here's some questions. Where were you when the gospel first made sense? What circumstances or events led to your conversion? What attribute or characteristic of God did you begin to grasp? Or how about this? How did God convict you of sin and show you your need for the Savior? How did you come to salvation? In what specific ways were you led to surrender to the Lord? And who was the Ananias in your salvation story? For me, it was my college roommate named Bruce. So give God glory by telling the story of God's grace in your life. Let's look next at the after. Before, what was my life like before? How did I come to Christ How's my life changed since? After sharing what he was like before meeting Christ, how he met Christ, Paul described how his life had changed. Join me in verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And notice here, Paul's kind of pushing back. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, see, when he's Lord, he, 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 he doesn't change, does he? This is what Paul was told, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, So I love this. Paul's describing a time where he wrestled with obeying the will of the Lord. See, when he returned to Jerusalem, some three years later, he was in Arabia. He went to the temple to pray. The Lord made it clear he was to get out of Jerusalem quickly. But here's Paul. He's like, uh, Lord, I know a lot of people here. I think I could be very effective here. And the Lord says, No, I have other plans for you. Interesting, in verse 19, Paul called him Lord, but he also wanted his own will to be done. Does it ever happen to you? It does to me. Verse 21, the Lord tells him emphatically how and where he is to live on mission. God wants his message to go to all nations. I've always wanted to do a deeper study on the word go, G O because it appears more than 1,700 times in the Bible. And sometime I will dive into that, but we're called to be a people who are willing to go because God is ascending God, and because God is a global God, his heart is for all people everywhere. Would you note, at the mere mention of the name Gentiles, these religious Jews went berserk. Revealing their pride and their prejudice. Now, for you and I, let's think through how has our life changed since we've come to know Christ? Here are some questions. In what specific ways has God changed you? How is Christ meeting your needs right now? What does your relationship with Christ mean to you? How has his forgiveness impacted you? Or this one, how does knowing Christ Give you purpose in life. Friends, give God glory by telling the story of God's grace in your life. We thought it would be really helpful for all of us to listen now to a testimony. And I've asked Edgewood member Chris Rogers to come up. Chris is married to Jamie. Uh, They have two children, Gabe, who's married to Sadie, and Sarah, who's a senior in high school. Chris has served as a deacon for many years, and he's one of our student leaders who teaches and disciples a group of guys. Chris, hey, thanks for coming up, man.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I grew up here around the church. Um, Specifically, I grew up attending church here at Edgewood. But I was uh, a kid that was kind of on the fringes. I was never really heavily involved, but I remember going to kids' church with Miss Sheila, and I was a Sparky in Awana. But honestly, I can look around this room, and I can see a few faces of people who, as a kid, invested in me. I can look around this room and see faces of people who shared the gospel with me as a kid. But you see, I just didn't understand. I didn't feel the weight of my sin. I didn't understand the urgency of the gospel. And then around middle school, I just fell out of the routine of coming to church. You see, other things just seemed to take priority. Now, I am a goal-oriented guy. And when I have goals, my wife will attest, I am hyper-focused on them. So after getting out of high school, I had life goals and I worked hard to obtain them. Now I always considered myself a good guy. I always considered myself a moral guy, but my focus was on success. My focus was on stability. My my focus was on reaching these life goals that I had set for myself. And then I found myself at 30 And I realized I had obtained every life goal I ever had dreamed to get. You see, on the outside, I was living this perfect life. I had the career I always wanted. I had an amazing wife and two crazy kids and a dog and the nice house (laughs) and the cars and the stuff. But if I was honest with myself, I began to realize how empty it all felt. How unfulfilled I really was. And no matter how many goals I set for myself and obtained, it all just seemed fleeting. But for me, I started to take and, and, and look into this, and I wrestled with this. Why did I feel this way? Why was I so unfulfilled? Why was I so empty? Why did joy seem so fleeting? And when I wrestled with that, I could only come up with two reasons, two potential possibilities of why I felt that way. And reason number one was the way I felt was simply the way everyone feels. You see, it's just that nobody's willing to talk about it. Mm. Nobody will admit it. But you see, if that's true, then that means every morning everybody wakes up and before they leave the house, they put a mask on and they go out into the world and they pretend that they're content with life. For me, that was just more than I wanted to deal with. But you see, the only other option, the only other reason I could think that I was so unfulfilled in life was that the one thing missing from my life was this God that I remember learning about in kids' church with Ms. Sheila. And like I said, for me to simply concede that I would feel this Uh, longing for something more for the rest of my life, was more than I wanted to accept. So I made the decision to start to dig in to find out if this God was true, if this God was real. And I wrestled with this for about two years. Now it's interesting how you can look back and you can see how clearly God was working in your life, right? You can see at, at that time in my life, God placed a man, a mentor, in my life, a guy that at work invested in me, a guy that was living his faith boldly in an environment that was pretty tough to do. And finally, in the spring of 2009, this man invited me to go to a men's retreat. Now, because he had invested in me, I trusted him and I easily said yes. And I remember uh, getting ready to walk into this old rustic building for, at, at this camp where this retreat was, and before I entered the door, I stopped, and I had a conversation with God, and I said, listen, I'm laying it all out this weekend. I'm, I'm willing to be open and vulnerable, God, but you got to prove yourself to me. You have to prove that you're real, that you're true. Now, this retreat was full of men that shared uh, m- many talks, and I just soaked all this information in. But the part for me that really stood out was that each of these men shared their testimonies. And I'd never been around men that were willing to be open and vulnerable to that degree. That were willing to share the dark parts of their lives, the sin that they struggled with. And as these men shared their testimonies, I was sitting in there, and and, and in some capacity, I could relate with each one of them. But the part that grabbed me, the part that really drew me in, <clears throat> was that they were not defined by their sin. They were not defined by their, the sin they had committed. Instead, these men talked about grace. And these men talked about forgiveness. And these men talked about hope. And for me in that moment, I needed that hope. Finally, on the last night of this retreat, I, was, uh, I found myself in this makeshift chapel. and I remember the lights were dim, and I was sitting in this super uncomfortable chair. <laughs> and in the corner was this rough cut wood cross that was propped up. And I just, I just remember sitting there just staring at this cross. And in that moment, I just felt broken. And the weight of my sin was heavy upon me. And I remember feeling this longing for this hope that these men had talked about earlier. Quietly, this frail old pastor takes and he walks in and, and he comes to me and he's just like, hey Chris, are you okay? And, and, and I tried to formulate words and I just remember sitting there with my head down and all I could do was just shake my head. No. But he pressed deeper. He says, Hey, have you ever surrendered your life to Christ? And again, I'm sitting there and my chest began to heave. And again, all I could do is just simply shake my head no. But then he asked me a question that I wasn't expecting. He said, Hey, man, what's stopping you?
0: Hmm.
1: What's holding you back? And if, if, if I was honest, I'd come up with a thousand excuses before. A thousand reasons why I couldn't trust God, or a thousand reasons why now wasn't the right time. But in that moment, I finally realized I had run out of excuses. And I looked up at this pastor, and I just simply said, Nothing. Nothing's holding me back anymore. And this like 800 year old pastor <laughs> reaches down to me and he grabbed me by the ear and pulled me out of that chair and led me across the, uh, the room to that rough cut wood cross. And I just dropped to the floor there. And both physically and spiritually, I just threw all of myself at the foot of that cross. I said, God, you can just have my everything. You can have my life. God, you can have my hopes and my dreams. God, you can have my aspirations. God, you can have my marriage and my career. God, you can have my selfishness and my sinfulness. But God, you can have it all. As I left that chapel that night, I stopped again for a moment, and I was like, man, I have no idea what just happened. But I can tell you this, I knew for certain that it was real, and that I was never going to be the same again. Now I told you I'm a goal-oriented guy and so by the end of the next day when I was getting ready to leave this retreat, I already had a plan. I knew I needed to do three things when I got home. I knew I needed to dig into Scripture because I needed to know more about this God that I just gave my everything to. I knew I needed to surround myself with people that would that would challenge me and would encourage me and it would help me to grow in my faith. And then I knew I needed to be around other believers and that I needed to be serving within the church. And so when I got home, that's exactly what I did. I began to pour over Scripture and very quickly I realized that I was missing the mark in so many areas. I began to realize that I needed to step up as a godly husband, I needed to step up as a godly dad. I needed to step up as a godly man. And I needed to learn to lead better. When I went back to work, that same mentor that had taken me to the retreat began to disciple me. He continued to walk through life with me. He continued to point me back to Jesus. And then I remember the conversation where he said, listen, it's time for you to do this now. It's time for you to begin to disciple someone. And so that's what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to look for opportunities to disciple other people, to walk through life, and then like so many other people had done for me, to point them to Jesus.
0: Hey, let's give Chris a hand and just uh, celebrate God's work in your life, man. I thought it would be good, before uh, Chris um, steps down, if we have just a little dialogue here. Chris, I've heard you share your testimony. It's all glory to God, and you tear up every time, and, and we, we just praise God for what he's done in your life. Uh, this week, I asked you to type it out, and I had told you that we were going to focus on before, how, and after. Could you just share, how was that process helpful for you personally to be thinking of before, how, and after?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, to, for me to take it in that order, it just seems it flows well, right? So, this is our story of how mm-hmm. God has worked in our life so powerfully. And so, to tell that story chronologically, mm-hmm. I think is just, man, that's, that's the way this should be told. That's the way Paul did it as well, right? Right. And so, what I do find interesting, though, is, is uh, w- my wife and I serve within student ministry as well. And so many of our students are like, I don't remember my life. Before I was saved, right. So many of them were saved down in kids' church with right. Sheila or or at home, but at a young age, and so they feel as if their testimonies are or are less than, or if their testimonies aren't as powerful. And I'm like, no, that's the testimony I wish I had, right? Me that's too. the testimony I prayed for for my kids, yeah, and I pray for for generations, yeah, Amen. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's a good word there, um, Chris. What What were some benefits of like even just typing out your testimony? Yeah. So. Uh, I, I get anxious to share my testimony, right? Because I want to make sure it's articulated well. I want to make sure that God's the one that gets the glory out of it. Um, I want to make sure that the details that I think are important are there. And, and so I get anxious when I go to share it. And then what I found is by having it typed out, I've got it on my phone in case I ever, yeah. have it in a conversation, if nothing else, I can pull that out. Uh, and, and I've got that written out. I even had a student one time who he had done the same thing, and he walked up to me and, and he had his testimony typed out on his phone, and he just goes, Read this. <laughs> and it was it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: And, and most of the time, we don't have 10 minutes to give our testimony. You, you're, you're looking at two to three minutes absolutely. sometimes in a conversation. Right. So it's good to have that thought out before. Chris, one last question. My guess is you customize your testimony depending on who you're talking to. Tell us about your thought process there,
1: like how you might change the intro or whatever. Right, right. Right, so I, I, I just have to say, like, my testimony itself doesn't change, right? It's my right. story, so it's not that my testimony changes, but I may place some emphasis on yep. different circumstances. And, and so one example is, is, is I'm a firefighter, and before I was saved... Um, I was in a really bad fire um, that, where things turned really bad really fast. Mm. And um, I began to fill with fear in that moment. And, and I, I remember crying out. And I said, oh, God. Right? And it wasn't until I was out of the fire and I, I looked back that I'm like, why did I cry out? Why did I say, oh, God? Why did I cry to a God that I didn't know or I didn't even believe in? And, and really, God used that in my life that I'm like, well, I got to find out why I said that. There you go. And so um, when I'm at work and I'm talking with with some of the firefighters there, like, I'll take and I'll make sure that I include that component. Because they can relate to that, too. Exactly. I try to meet people where they're at and and, and find some common common ground. It's kind of what
0: Paul did, right? He could speak all these languages, but he spoke Hebrew when he was talking to somebody who was Jewish. Yeah. All right, thanks, Chris. Appreciate it, brother. Let's give him another hand. Well, sometimes when we share a testimony, things don't go so well. Let's pick this up. Verses 22 to 24, up to this word. What was the word? Gentiles. They listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So they cast off their garments, they flung dust in the air that symbolized that they were ready to stone him to death. It was a symbol of absolute rage and indignation. Now, this was Roman flogging. The Jewish had a form of flogging. Uh, This was much worse than what the Jews did. Flogging involved using a leather whip with pieces of metal or bone attached. It was designed to shred a criminal's back. Sometimes it produced death or permanent disability. In our culture, it was like waterboarding in which they're hoping to elicit a confession. So this is what Paul's facing. Look at verses 25 and following. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, he probably said, "Uh uh-oh, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound So with complete composure, Paul asked the centurion if it was lawful to flog an uncondemned Roman citizen. When the tribune, the military officer, heard this, he's alarmed. Why? Because now he's in danger. Paul appealed to his rights as a citizen, and he eventually appeared before governors, and because he did that, he later journeyed to Rome, where he gave his testimony to Caesar himself so let 's sum up, give God glory by telling the story of god 's grace in your life. Now, before sharing some pointers which will help us prepare our testimonies, I want to mention two resources that we posted on Sermon Extras. You can get to this on your mobile app. Um, if you don 't have that, please download it it. One resource is called How to Prepare Your Personal Testimony. The other, Chris addressed, it's called My Boring Christian Testimony. Simply go to the resource tab on the website or the e-bulletin. I circled it on the bottom there. That'll open that, which will open that, and then the links are right there to those articles. I want to share some guidelines now to keep in mind when sharing your testimony. Number one, pray for wisdom and insight. Asking God to give you the right words. Number two, tailor your testimony to the person you're speaking with. Uh, Paul did that. He said, when I'm with the Jew, I became like a Jew. When I was with the Greek, I became like a Greek. Number three, be positive and smile. (laughs) Number four, don't become preachy. Simply tell your story. Say, I, me, not you. Give just enough details to arouse interest reduce clutter where you can like don't get caught up in well that was 1983 or maybe it was 84 that was joe no maybe it was bob maybe it was here don't don't get all caught up in that number six avoid churchy words and religious jargon number seven be careful about criticizing churches or denominations you might be speaking to somebody who's part of that number eight Type out your testimony. It'll help you choose the right words. It'll help make sure it flows. And, as Chris mentioned, you'll become more confident in sharing your story. Number nine, practice giving your testimony in three minutes. Earlier this week, I read out loud this whole chapter, Paul's testimony, and it took me three minutes. Listen, if you can share your testimony in three minutes, you can always add Elements to it. Number 10, consider ending with something like this. The greatest benefit is I know for certain I have eternal life or now I know all my sins are forgiven. That may give you a jumping off point to give a clear presentation of the gospel. Here's another idea. When you're finished, bring the conversation back to the listener. You could say, has anything like this ever happened to you? If they say no, you could ask, would, would you like it to?" You know, wouldn't you agree there are a lot of drug commercials on TV? Have you noticed that? I mean, they're like everywhere. And would you notice they almost always have a personal testimony in them. starts off with someone suffering from a specific disease or problem, and then how a particular drug helped them out. These testimonials seem believable until you get closer and you read the fine print. The person who's a patient is an actor, a fake patient, who consults with a fake doctor dressed in a white lab coat, often called called doctor dramatizations. And after learning what a drug might be good for, the ads end with this rapid-fire staccato-like talk about possible side effects, right? You're like, I'm never taking that drug. It's all just a bit unnerving. But those ads made me think of something because they're built on testimony. It made me think of two great foes that you and I have when it comes to witnessing. Number one is this. All talk and no walk. We talk it, but somebody's looking at our life, and they're like, "Uh, you're not living it. We might confess Christ with our lips, but essentially we're denying him by our lives. And that kind of acting is not fooling anyone. But there's another foe that we have to do battle with, and it's this all walk and no talk. We say, I'm just going to let people see Jesus in me. Well, that's important. But if we don't put it into words, how are they going to hear the gospel? We might cultivate a Christian life, but but deny him by simply not speaking about him. I used to like a phrase, and then I decided I don't like a phrase. Ever happened to you? Here's the phrase. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Here's what I would say to that now. It is necessary to use our lips to preach the gospel, and it's necessary to make sure our lives line up with our lips. Let me say it like this. We must talk the walk, and we must walk the talk.